Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Back in the 1970s, punk was shorthand for a subculture that took pride in breaking the mainstream's mold. And at the vanguard of punk rock was the Ramones. We explore the cultural contributions of the band beyond the myths. Plus, we'll revisit our 2007 conversation with the late Tommy Ramone. And we review the debut album from Chance the Rapper. Once upon a time I wasn't sure of myself. I would always claim I never had no help. Look into the mirror, the most unfair of all. Hit the player ball, it was unbearable. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You are listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner Jim DeRogatis. And this week we're digging into the cultural contributions of punk icons, the Ramones. That's later in the show. But first, we've got some new music to review. Oh my God, I think it's the greatest day of my life. So glad you arrived. But the only way to survive is to go crazy. Yeah, the only way to survive. That is a little bit of the new Chance the Rapper album. It's called The Big Day. That is the title track from The Big Day. It is being billed as Chance the Rapper's first official album, although he has released numerous mixtapes over the last decade or so. The latest mixtape in 2016, Coloring Book, was a huge hit. It was the first streaming-only album to win a Grammy Award. In fact, three Grammy Awards and peaked at number eight on the Billboard 200. There's obviously a lot of people looking at this next album, what it will be. In many ways, Chance has transcended music, not only become a producer of stadium concerts, a philanthropist who's donated a million bucks to Chicago Public Schools, a would-be publisher. He just bought a news website last year, and now he's got uh, a ton of guests on this record. John Legend, Death Cab for Cutie, Knox Fortune, Gucci Mane, Nicki Minaj, Randy Newman, of all people. Randy Newman. Here's a track from the big day. It's called Ballin' Flossin' by Chance the Rapper on Sound Opinions. Yeah, me feed it by Queenstown. You know what I'm saying? Like, look, I'm, I'm gonna keep it 100, 150,000 grand with y'all right now. And it, it filling my seats, yeah. Show me all the money that you make off that. That you make off that. Peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. Peanut butter jelly with a peanut butter jelly. Y'all ain't ready for the jelly. It'll break y'all back. It'll break y'all back. Really got a body, can you shake all that? Can you shake all that? Can you shake all that? I got big dreams, super big eyes, retro ride, Marty McFly. Big day, super big vibes. Let's get right, loosen this tie, move inside, move to the side, group then slide, group in slide, inside. Oh, yeah. And I really wanna see y'all bounce. 79 bounce, out south bounce, north side bounce, over east bounce, 290 bounce, downtown bounce, downtown. That is what is being billed as Chance the Rapper's debut album. Greg, that seems like a ridiculous technicality. When you yeah. were won, you know, a Grammy for Album of the Year, Rap Album of the Year. And I think Chance has given us 
album-worthy collections before. Over the course of that, as you said, he has emerged. We're not being homers, not only as the most important voice in hip-hop from Chicago, but I think on the national scene. It is also, I think, the least fully realized of any of the collections of music, mixtape, album, whatever you want to call them, that he has given us since 2012. 22 songs, an hour and 22 minutes, he really could have used an editor. Now, the production is excellent, as it always has been with him. Much of it courtesy of collaborations with Nico Siegel, Peter Cottontail, and then there's that parade of guests. The guests, I think, are superfluous. The skits are nothing but, you know, unwelcome distraction, telling him what he's got to do when he grows up. He's got to get health insurance. That's one of the big themes, growing up. Now, that's been a theme with Chancellor Bennett from the beginning. He loves nostalgia. He loves talking about sitting on the living room floor, watching cartoons on TV, watching movies he loves. Why is Randy Newman here? Randy Newman, I'm sure, is here because he's done the soundtracks for Toy Story. You know, Mm -hmm. and Chance loves this stuff that he consumed as a young millennial. He is forever dropping references in. It's fun. It gets a little old. We are in the Drake era of emo hip-hop, self-confessional, and Chance is not above that. He talks about having cheated on his now wife. They just got married earlier this year. That's the big day of the title track, happiest day of his life, he tells us. Look, to me, he proved his genius with that one-two punch, really a kind of long suite on acid rap in 2013, Push a man into paranoia. They murking kids. They murder kids here. Why you think they don't talk about it? They deserted us here. We have nothing here as powerful as push a man paranoia. We also don't have anything bad. I mean, he's a very fluid rapper. This album could use some pruning. It'd be a lot better at about 18 tracks, maybe 16, I think. I don't feel that he's growing. It seems like he's kind of stuck in a rut. Well, we're already starting to see a Chance the Rapper backlash, which is a first for this artist. You know, it was four years ago, five years ago, it was cool to like Chance the Rapper. It's not cool anymore. And, you know, that's neither here nor there. But the point is, I think, you know, the whole notion of family fatherhood adult responsibility that's never been cool you know we have a dad rap album here is basically what we have (laughs) and that's not cool enough for some people that said and i celebrate a guy who's gonna talk frankly and honestly about where his life is at i think that's a a noble gesture and i think uh, you mentioned that track we go high where he's talking about the difficulties that uh, having a relationship with a woman uh, long-term can bring. My baby mama went celibate. Lies on my breath, she said she couldn't take the smell of it. Tired of the rumors, every room had an elephant. You also run into this notion, okay, these are big subjects. Adulthood, being a husband, being a father, you know, a planning for the future, as that Randy Newman cameo talks about, the five-year plan. You're going to have several revelations in your first five days. In your first five minutes, have your first five fans. But he's not really exploring these subjects in the kind of depth I would hope he would, because these are complex subjects, and he's sort of glossing over. He's celebrating them, and that's great. Hey, you're celebrating. But, you know, 
almost 22 tracks of celebration runs a little thin after a while. It seems like we're nitpicking. In one way, we are. If you take the skits out of the mix, this is a great summertime backyard barbecue groove album. Oh, yeah, for sure. I just think he's pulling his punches. If there had been more introspection and honesty, brutal honesty, it could have been a masterpiece. Well, I think you saw some of that in those uh, singles that he put out last year. The complexity that Chant is very capable of achieving lyrically is not as apparent on this record. And for that reason, the fact that it is 22 tracks does make it feel like a little bit of a chore to sit through. It, It definitely could have used some pruning. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergottis here with my partner Greg Cott, and this week we are presenting another installment of our Summer School series. This time we're tackling a question that may be obvious to some. Why do the Ramones matter? You know, that's right, Jim. The Ramones formed in Queens, uh, New York in 74, and uh, the original lineup was lead singer Joey Ramone, guitarist Johnny Ramone, bass guitarist D.D. Ramone, and drummer Tommy Ramone. Now, they weren't brothers, but uh, they took the, the conceit of the Ramones, everybody being named a Ramone. That was a, that's bubblegum pop. They, they modeled themselves after these kind of melodic, uh, chart-topping uh, bubblegum bands of the 60s in some ways. And although they were never at the top of the charts like some of their bubblegum icons, their influence on both punk music and on American culture at large is undeniable. Uh, decades later, we still see people around the world wearing uh, Ramones t-shirts, and uh, those people have been told that the Ramones are in the top tier of influential rock groups, which is, which is very apparent anytime you want to listen to one of their albums or, or singles or hear it on the radio. Uh, but these people, uh, you know, generations subsequent to the Ramones' arrival, haven't really uh, been able to dig into why the band has mattered beyond their iconic status. Well, when we heard the title of this new book, Why the Ramones Matter, one of our producers, Ayana, said, uh, yeah, I'd like to know. And so we said, there's a show. That book, Why the Ramones Matter, is the latest from Donna Gaines, a sociologist, a journalist, a fine critic, and now an author, uh, to discuss the musical, social, and even political contributions of the band we turned to Donna. Well, that's exactly what I had in mind. It's like, I know why they matter. The Ramones matter to so many fans across generations and worldwide. But what about the, you know, the the 12-year-old kid that just discovers something and wants to know about it or sees my T-shirt on the beach or somebody who is, uh, you know, from my generation that just wondered what all the fuss was about? So I built an argument um, trying to look at why they mattered culturally, socially, politically, spiritually, historically, and of course, musically. And um, I try to pile that uh, on top of one another. Some of the things that they did was they, you know, that I, I really remember impacting me was 
he, they taught us as just young people uh, when they broke in the you know early 70s, mid-70s, how to uh, use our own warped individuality, our alienation and creativity to transcend all the BS that we were being fed by the media, by all the social institutions. They offered us a very subterranean view of post-World War II America, mm. high theory, low culture, which, you know, <laughs> we yeah. love so well. Mm. And they, they were grappling with the aftermath of Nazism. They were really the first uh, to emerge in popular culture to actually address that. I can't be what you want from me. I'm thinking of these two kids I met in Italy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of this 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 dusty uh, ancient medieval village in Italy, and there's these two most sullen teenagers, a guy and a girl, you know, and they're dating, right? And they're sort of together, but you, but you know, like they they they're also sort of apart, you know. And they're there with the leather jackets and the Ramones t-shirts. They're sitting, they're smoking, they're drinking on a street corner. And I go up to them and say, Ramones! They're both wearing Ramones t-shirts. I knew Joey Ramone, Ramone, right? And suddenly, we were like brothers and sisters. <laughs> right? I mean, so, so when you say the worldwide connection, but this mythical mythical 13-year-old is standing there sneering at you. Because what do you know, Dr. Gaines? You know, I mean, you're, you're an authority figure. They don't know you yet, right? But you're older, therefore you're a suspect. The main thing that a young person has to know is that the Ramones reminded us that rock and roll belonged to the kids and not to the corporate interests. Yeah. Um, and that they their mission was to save rock and roll and reclaim it for the street, for young people. Uh, and they also had um, what we you know, might call a ministry, which was to carry the good news that rock and roll belongs to everyone. They really gave popular culture back to the people. And um, they, if you listen to any of their albums, they literally are instructional manuals to teach you how to play music. So Mm. you can show up, not have money to buy expensive clothes, not have any big connections, not have a perfect body or even a perfect mind. And um, you can you can do rock and roll and that holds up. But I think to that 13 year old kid, and I think <laughs> that that little kid is still alive in me. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Um, that liveliness and curiosity and just um, excitement about life. Um, they gave kids the power to create their own cultural products. Uh, they disseminated the idea of do it yourself, so that like you could set up a band, you could set up. Uh, shows. You could print out flyers. You could book shows. You could get guest lists together. They really taught young people how to do it for themselves. Now, you know that that's very radical, but the most exquisite thing is the ethic of inclusion uh, with songs like Outsider and uh, Pinhead, where they say, Gaba Gaba, we accept you. We accept you, one of us. Gaba Gaba, we accept you. So they created space for the outcast. They made it, um, if you were not really hitting it at school or at home or on the street, if you were the kind of kid 
who hung out like the Ramones did, like I did, on street corners, what Dee Dee called the obvious creeps of the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, the troublemakers. <laughs> you know, you're a creative uh, person that is of value. You know, you're not just the punk on the street mm -hmm. that the police, uh, you know, think is a nuisance and everybody uh, kind of labels as a loser. The, the values in the that the Ramones have not only expressed musically, but lived yeah, in their who every... They who they were. which was, you know, kind of the same as their music. Mm -hmm. It gives everybody a shot. And especially now with the clicks and the bullying and, and the, the, or the, all the creepy testing and the soul-killing BS that, uh, you know, education and, you know, it's just all the craziness. It gives people some fresh air. That was Donna Gaines, author of Why the Ramones Matter. Tommy Ramone, born Tomas Erdelai, wore a lot of different hats as a founder of the group, its drummer, its producer. When we spoke to Tommy back in 2007, he was the last surviving original member of the Ramones, and he died in 2014. Among other subjects, we uh, talked to Tommy about how the band came together and about the distinctive backbeat that Tommy contributed to the sound of the Ramones. I met John in the high school cafeteria the first day of high school, and we bonded right away through music. He was a really witty, funny guy, and uh, Dee Dee moved into the neighborhood like about a year or two later. And uh, Joey I knew, actually I met Joey before I met Johnny at some uh, weird jam session where he was playing a snare drum. <laughs> mm -hmm. This was when I was about 15, 16, and uh, he was like 14, and he was just hitting the snare drum looking really strange. <laughs> yeah, he, he always did. <laughs> started out as a Ramones drummer. Exactly. I was going to say that. That's where he, the band started. Joey, as the drummer of the band. And you were going to manage the band, as I understand. Right, Tommy? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was originally the manager. Uh, they, they were sort of a concept of mine. I mean, I had seen the New York Dolls, and uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed them. I, I saw that what they were doing you know, wasn't very virtuosic, but they were like the most exciting band I'd seen in a long time. And uh, I just thought about, well, I know these guys in Forest Hills. If, if I could get them together, they might be interesting. And uh, so I encouraged them to get some instruments and do that. And so at first rehearsal, I was like, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I, I knew it would be colorful and interesting. And, but they showed up with these like really strange, bizarre songs. <laughs> and I said, wow, we got a little extra here. The, these guys are coming up with these very unique songs. So things got going pretty quickly, you know, right from the start. So the satirical take on suburban life and uh, the state of the, the family and drugs and street culture, this was all in, in terms of the, the subject matter, was there from the start. Yeah, they came in with lots of baggage. I'm a drummer myself, and I think the Ramones never get enough credit for their influence in rock on drumming because it was so simple and yet uh, revolutionary. The tempos are extraordinary, the 16th notes on the hi-hat. Where, where did that revved up energy come from? Was it a natural expression? Or maybe there, there was really no rhythm like that, and today it's ubiquitous, so I think we take it for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, partially it, it comes down to Johnny, who wanted to be a baseball player. 
when he used to pitch stickball with us, he would throw fastballs. So <laughs> yeah. he was a big fastball pitcher. So when he started playing guitar, his virtuosity became speed. Uh, Joey was playing drums at first, was trying to keep up with that. <laughs> and uh, his drums would fall apart after every song, literally. Yeah. That's not an exaggeration. So we'd have to pick up the pieces after every song. <laughs> when I became the drummer, I never played drums before. I was a guitar player. Really? So you never, you'd never never sat down and sat, No, no. I never played drums uh, ever before that. But I knew what uh, I wanted to hear, which I couldn't get other drummers to play. So right away, I pretty much clicked in with uh, something that uh, matched Johnny's forward drive. And a lot of the things I was doing was uh, uh, probably backwards to what a uh, normal drummer would do, like on cymbal crashes and things like that. I would mm. sometimes do cymbal crashes where opposite of where somebody else would do it. I just wanted uh, to play what I heard in my head. That was the great Tommy Ramone in 2007. Sadly, he died in 2014. When we come back, we'll hear more of our conversation with him, and then we'll talk more with author Donna Gaines about why the Ramones matter. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. And now before the break, we heard a bit of our 2007 conversation with founding member of the Ramones, Tommy Ramone. He talked about the forming of the Ramones as well as his role in the group's sound. Tommy produced their classic 1977 album, Rocket to Russia. So we asked him why he chose to leave the band soon after. Well, the thing is, what made those guys so great, what made them so talented and everything, also made them very hard to be with 24 hours, seven days a week, <laughs> and traveling with them in a small van. They were in a, in a world that where it's hard to keep your sanity. There was something very unreal about them. And uh, like I said, it made for great creativity, made for great music, great ideas. But uh, I needed to keep uh, a little touch with reality. That was Tommy Ramone in 2007. He was the last surviving member of the Ramones when we talked to him, and he died in 2014. We'll hear more of our conversation with Tommy later in the show. Uh, He hinted at some of the moodiness that was lurking beneath the surface of the band. 
So Greg asked Donna Gaines, author of Why the Ramones Matter, about some of the feelings of sadness that were part of the DNA of this band. It seemed like, to me, whenever I read the Ramones stories, and, and, and your book touches on this too, Donna, is that there was a sadness at the core of the band. There was never, they were never, you know, they weren't happy campers for a long time. Uh, they felt, I think, somewhat unfulfilled by what the band was able to give them. Uh, their, their expectations were not met. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, exactly. I mean, you know, in writing it, I felt this deep sorrow. It's kind of, an, and it's a little bit of a leap here, but when you think about all the unsung heroes of, of, of America, the, the people who fight the wars, people who work the job, working men and women, you know, who take the big risks and give their whole heart and work so hard and do it for the right reasons, and they really, they don't get anything. And there was a sorrow and there was a bitterness. Tommy lived a little longer to see things I remember being with Joey in the hospital when he was, you know, he, he he was in his last days and Spin Magazine put him on the cover and it meant everything to him, everything. Um, you know, the induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of fame came later. That only, to me, uh, speaks to their authenticity. It's more of a statement on uh, how America treats its artists yeah. mm-hmm. and its innovators. I'm really... So glad to see their legacy permeating everything. And they were actually punk academics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really haven't figured out, uh, you know, if if uh, if that would be us, Jim. You know. Yeah, yeah. Probably. Well, we're but... old, so mm-hmm. yeah. The skeptic would say, hey, the band really didn't have any hits, uh, wasn't a commercial presence, didn't sell a lot of records. They were really a cult band. So it was a, bunch, a band of misfits, and it was a, it, was a, it was a group of misfits. It wasn't like the, you know, this national uh, scale Ramones mania that probably the band was worthy of but never quite achieved. And I think there was a, a frustration there within the band that they never did get to that level. And, and some may argue that a lot of what you're saying was perhaps better embodied, although to an incredibly watered-down degree, a generation or two down the road by a band like Green Day, which wouldn't exist without the Ramones, but had 10, 20 times the success and reached many more kids in suburbia, etc., than the Ramones did. So are you saying that the Ramones sort of transcended those lack of record sales to still reach this audience that made them, that made this cultural impact uh, Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, you know, uh, mentioning Green Day even in the same sentence, like uh, they are really lovely men. They, honor, <laughs> they, honor, they really are. I've met them. They're, they're very good people. Um, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, those guys honor the Ramones as if they were their fathers. Right. 
Part of the problem is if you're devoted to uh, giving the middle finger, uh, <laughs> you're just giving it all the time in all directions. But that's, the, again, this quintessential American band, right, with all of the messy conflicts that is America. Exactly. That's so that's so well put because, you know, with all the contradictions, I don't want to get get grotesque with the uh, with the jargon, but the contradictions of capitalism, <laughs> <laughs> all the contradictions of, you know, of, of our ideologies that you've articulated and, you know, embedded in the conversation here today. I think there's a difference between politics with a big P, which is the election and the parties and the rhetorics and the ideologies. And then there's the politics of everyday life and everyday experience where kids are powerless. Kids without money and, you know, who aren't at the top of the class may have, a, you know, no shot at a good life. And I think every one of their songs really reflects that. So, you know, my sociological imagination would tease that out. But um, when you have a band that has this level of loyalty that crosses every category now, they've got to be tapping into some vital, charismatic, connection to something in people, which is just a struggle for dignity and to be heard and to be respected. And uh, I think hip hop audiences and metal audiences pick that up in their artists. Um, But the Ramones are, you know, were mine. So... Well, and then you dance, despite all the oh, complications, yeah. Uncle Lou saying, we can still dance to the rock and roll yeah, station. Yeah, but, you know, you're making the Ramones sound like they're a sociological, political thing, you know, and I think when it comes down to it, you hear these two-minute songs, and it's a simple, they're simple songs, but they didn't dumb it down, which is, there's a genius in that. And I think the central idea behind the Ramones, especially early on, was that our lives are absurd. Uh, we we need humor to survive. <laughs> yeah. You know, our mundane existence. We have been talking to Donna Gaines. Uh, Why the Ramones Matter is the new book. Donna is a force of nature. From Rockaway, rock, rock, rockaway. Be a teacher, educator, sociologist, journalist, great storyteller. Thank you, Donna, for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up next, more of our 2007 conversation with drummer and producer Tommy Ramone and a classic album dissection of the Ramones' Rocket to Russia. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a bit of teenage lobotomy from the classic 1977 album, Rocket to Russia. From time to time, we like to do a classic album dissection, diving deep into the history of a record that we think is one for the ages. That certainly applies to Rocket to Russia, the Ramones' 1977 release, which is really the best of the Ramones' early records, and it was produced by Tommy Ramone. Greg, in appreciating Rocket to Russia, one of the things that you have to understand right off the bat is what a breath of fresh air something like that song, Teenage Lobotomy, was in the mid-70s. You know, Genesis, yes, James Taylor, Loggins and Messina, the Eagles, that was the stuff that was ruling the airwaves. There was a real lack of energy in rock and roll. There was no excitement. There was no fun. There was no spirit. A lot of critics, some people in the music industry, some musicians thought, How did rock and roll get away from Chuck Berry in the 50s and the British Invasion and the Beach Boys and come to be mired down in these tales of topographic oceans, this progressive rock flatulence? What happened to rock and roll? I think Seymour Stein at Sire Records was asking that same question because he signed the Ramones after seeing them at CBGB's, the infamous Lower East Side Club. And they put out their debut record in April of 1976, and it was it was that breath of fresh air. It was the first real big salvo in the punk rock movement in the United States. They toured England for the first time a few months later. In fact, July 4th, 1976, first show in London, where the Sex Pistols were there, the future members of The Clash were there, the Damned were there, and they go, right. oh my God, we have just seen our future. The flip side <laughs> of the British invasion. It was the American invasion. Exactly. In a couple months, months later, they, they released another record, and then their third album came out in November of 1977. The Ramones always recorded for a major label, and they were under the sponsorship of Seymour Stein who thought they were going to be a hit. So for the third album, he really invested in them. First album was made for six grand. Album number three, Rocket to Russia, they spent $25,000 and went to a studio in midtown Manhattan called Media Sound in the middle of the summer to record this record. Exactly. You had these four guys from the far, far suburbs of New York City, Forest Hills, blue-collar guys, getting together in a band essentially with the idea to restore some of what they loved and weren't hearing in in rock and roll anymore. They loved that early Brill Building stuff, the Brill Building pop songs of Carole King, the Phil Spector sound of the early 60s, the craft of those songs, the, the catchy, undeniable craft of Beach Boys songs. They weren't hearing any of this on the radio anymore, and they wanted to make some songs in their own image. The, the fact is that it had been 15 years since, though, and they updated the sound quite a bit. I mean, what I think they did, Jim, that was innovative was to take that early 60s sound that they love so much, that bubblegum and that pop sound, and, and take all the fat out of it and just turn it into the speed train. Uh, rev it up by about you know 150 miles an hour and turn it into these rush of pop songs. So instead of a two and a half or three minute song, you would get a minute long or a minute and a half long song exactly. that just blew the doors off. Exactly. Now it's easy to forget at this point in time where you know you have a Fallout Boy and a Blink uh, 182 and some 41 in, in every shopping mall in America. How revolutionary this was at the time. There was no punk rock. The Ramones took this name and they decided to wear it as a badge of pride and and to dress like idiots from the street, but they weren't. You know. They, they really were. Only D.D., uh, Douglas Colvin, the bass player, he was the real deal. He was the guy who was actually sniffing glue. Uh, <laughs> but Jeff Hyman, who would become Joey Ramone, was a, was a smart, educated guy. John Cummings was a street smart guy, loved baseball. And then you had Greg Tommy Ramone, better known to his parents anyway as Tomas Erdelai, who was born in Budapest, not even an American, you know, immigrated to the U.S. Uh, and, and key part in, in forming one of the 
iconic American bands. He was a little older than the other guys. He'd been a studio intern when Jimi Hendrix was recording Band of Gypsies. He knew the music industry, and he had this vision for a band. Here's one of the songs he co-wrote, Cretan Hop, classic from Rocket to Russia. Tommy was really the forgotten Ramon. He had a career after the Ramones and even went on to produce The Replacements. We spoke to him in 2007, and at the time, he was the last surviving original member of the Ramones. Tommy, we want to ask you about Rocket to Russia. Your third album came out in 1977. You were the co-producer. Was there a sense that this was the Ramones moment, that this was the time that you were going to break into the top ten, that you were actually going to have singles on on the commercial radio airwaves? Yeah. Well, that record is uh, the Ramones at their peak. By that time, we were really playing well and fluidly. Uh, we had a lot of confidence. We thought that we were going to make it because we knew we were good. We were getting good reviews and everything. We had the momentum. And we were, you know, this was inspiring us to write great songs. So we were writing some good songs. And we had a, a little more money, thus a little more time in the studio. And so uh, all these things came together. Had you toured much? Yeah, we were touring constantly. We had been to England uh, for the first time, uh, for uh, for sure. So we could really play well then. As far as the studio was concerned, it was great because uh, that was just me and uh, my co-producers and an engineer, you Mm -hmm. know? And the Ramones would come in and do the basic tracks, and then Dee Dee and Johnny would leave. (laughs) (laughs) And then Joey would, would do Joey's vocals, and then he would leave, and then boom. So... For me, this was uh, just ecstasy because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we were just there to create. I mean, it was still a, s- a relatively small budget, so we had to really work for hard and fast. But uh, it was uh, one of the greatest times of um, you know my life uh, to be able to work on that record. We knew that, wow, you know, this thing is really great. With that Sex Pistols single, God Save the Queen, and he announced, these guys ripped us off and I want to sound better than this. punk thing was just starting to bubble under in England, and it was inspired in many ways by the Ramones tour there the previous summer in 1976. So I asked Tommy Ramone if all of this was reflected back on what they were trying to do in the studio while recording Rocket to Russia. Here he is in 2007 talking about that rivalry. Well, naturally we were very competitive, and uh, we liked that uh, record, and uh, we saw that they were taking what we were doing and... uh, they were going into really high-priced studios with uh, high, high-priced people. They spent a lot of money. They spent yeah. a lot of money, and, and they got to, you know. But we listen to it, and we say, well, hey, we got to beat this thing. Production starts to become interesting on Rocket to Russia. You know, Sheena's a punk rocker, has sleigh bells, right? You know, it's beautiful. It's a Phil Spector touch, but three times as fast.
you know, I'm, I'm kind of hung up and preoccupied with, with being tasteful. Mm. I mean, any, anything uh, that we incorporated had to be, it had to work with the song. And uh, we were always adding those little little touches, even in, in the first record, uh, you know, which we did in like two hours. <laughs> but um, a lot of that stuff, uh, stuff is almost subliminal. You can barely hear it and, and just in the background, just to add a little little color, a little, a little flavor, sometimes a little humor. Mm. You took out all the fat, I think. There was just <laughs> no filler. I mean, it's like every note, every drum beat, every word had to mean something, had to count. Yeah, we did a lot of editing out of things that weren't necessary or weren't cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there isn't a song on, on the album that even hits three minutes. We didn't want it to go on any longer than it had to. <laughs> say what you got to say and get out of the way. Get out. Uh, did you know Sheena is a punk rocker was a great song? I mean, it, to me, I, I've always said if we if we had to choose one song to put in a, in a time capsule, shoot into space, explain to an alien civilization what is rock and roll, it is it is that song. Yeah. Seymour uh, Stein especially loved that song. And uh, he sent us into the studio just to record that one song. Yeah, it's a great song. Joey was brilliant at coming up with uh, these sort of unique, very melodic pop songs. Uh, he was amazingly talented uh, with that. I think we were a little ahead of our times, too, though. We were just a, as good as Sheena's a punk rocker is. It's still maybe a bit too quirky, you know. It didn't seem that way to us. But uh, we were just a little bit ahead of our times and a little over people's heads, I think. And uh, uh, so who knows? Yeah. I noticed there was another apocal event on Rocket to Russia in terms of Ramon's lore, and that was a guitar solo by Johnny Ramon on uh, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. There was actually a few bars there where you could say, well, that's kind of a guitar solo there. Um, yeah. Was that, how, how did that come about? Did you have to like I, I prod Johnny? Stu- I went into the studio and recorded it. <laughs> you played it? Yeah. Did there you really? You oh, yeah. So it's your guitar playing. Okay, <laughs> that, that the secret's out. I don't think we, I don't think I've heard that anywhere before. That's great. You didn't piss him off, did you? Because I wouldn't want no, Johnny mad no, at me. He no, he didn't mind that. Okay. No. <laughs> now, what made you think, well, a guitar solo would be appropriate on a Ramon song? That was the first time one had been actually played on a uh, Actually, song. one of my favorite guitar solos was uh, on the Rolling Stones' uh, Tell Me. Mm. It's basically the same solo. Mm-hmm. I just love that solo because it was so simple. It's just arpeggios. And I just love that. And I said, uh, boy, that would be great in this song. So that's kind of how that ended up there. D.D. Ramon is counting off a number of the songs, which gives the impression that it's very live. Was that, was that in fact, how the rhythm tracks were recorded? D.D.'s counting them off, and boom, the band's off to the races, and that's how it's going to go in the studio. Obviously, the live performances were that like that. When we first started rehearsing, D.D. was the lead singer, and he would count off the songs, and we just thought it was, it was the most hilarious thing we ever heard. <laughs> you know, and so we would encourage him to do that. So we, you know, we just kept that in. And yes, those, uh, the, those counts in the studio are, uh, are real. And uh, his counts had absolutely nothing to do with the speed of the songs. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Uh, he would count off a song, and uh, when he would say the word four, we would just come in at the right speed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> One, two, three, four.
there a track on on the record that you really love? You know, one that sort of stands out above the others in terms of your appreciation. Uh, there's so many. This record has so many great songs. Uh, Cretan Hop, Rockaway Beach, We're a Happy Family. Yeah. Is, you know, these are all great songs. Sitting here in Queens, eating refried beans, wearing all the magazines, gulping down Thorazine. <laughs> really, really <laughs> funny, really dark songs. It might be a little bit twisted, for certainly for the tastes <laughs> of the 1970s. Even it, Rock- it just shouldn't go this way or something. Yeah. E- even, even Rockaway Beach, I heard, was not a pretty place, and yet the, the song was sort of celebrating this kind of idyllic beach, like as if it was in a Beach Boy song, right? Is that is that correct? Yeah, uh, Dee Dee was the one that would go to the beach. Uh, it, that's his song, and I think it's uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. And I think that definitely should have been a hit if yeah. it wouldn't have been released in the middle of January. <laughs> that too. Well, yeah, but also anybody who lived in New York, I grew up in New York. You know, you go to Rockaway Beach, you're going to get a syringe in your foot or yeah, a razor yeah. blade, or, or or you're going to get mugged. I mean, yeah. that's. Not a pretty place. It, it wasn't the nicest beach in the world. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and these guys are singing this <laughs> yeah. celebratory beach song about it. That's great. Tommy Erdelai, Tommy Ramone, one of the greatest drummers for my money in rock history and one of the members of the most influential bands ever. Thanks for being here on Sound Opinions. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed this. That was Tommy Ramone in 2007 when he was the last surviving original member of the Ramones. Sadly, the four founders of the group are all gone now. We like to wrap up these classic album dissections, Greg, by each picking a track that we want to highlight. Why don't you go first? You know, Jim, it's almost impossible to pick just one song, but uh, one of the things that uh, Tommy said in our interview with him that sort of inspired my choice for a uh, track to play from this record is the fact that they were ahead of their time and that they were a little darker and a little more subversive than maybe the mainstream was ready for at that particular moment. And I think the Ramones, among the many reasons that they formed the band and played the way they did, was they wanted to write music and write songs and lyrics that addressed issues that weren't being addressed in popular culture at all at the time. For example, in the song, We're a Happy Family, uh, it is a complete repudiation of everything that pop culture was telling us about the American family at Leave that time. Leave it to Beaver and the sitcom family. Yeah, yeah. you know, Ozzie and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver. We had Happy Days as one of the most, as maybe the most popular show in America at the time. In only a couple more years, we would get the Cosby Show. These kind of weirdly idyllic representations of what family life was like. And the Ramones were I didn't grow up in a house like that. Nobody did. And we, we don't know anybody who did. We want to write a song that is more representative yeah. of the kind of families we grew up in. <laughs> and so, yes, they did exaggerate, and they did turn it into a bit of a comic book, but it was hilarious, and it, was, it resonated much more deeply with people who could identify with that more darker aspect of the American family life situation than what they were seeing represented in the larger culture at large. You know, to my mind, it, it was a brilliant pop song as well. You know, we talked to Tommy about what a great 
great drummer he is. I mean, talk about the supersonic metronome. This is like half speed for Tommy, and even this song <laughs> is about twice as fast as anything else on American radio at the moment. And then you got to love the little pop culture reference at the end to Todd Browning's Freaks. The Freaks are taking over, and, and, and the Ramones are sort of babbling over the top as the song ends, and one of them is saying, where's my safety pin? Where's my safety yeah, pin? And yeah, it was yeah. a, little, a, little, a little shout out to the British punks who were sort of turning punk into a fashion statement at the time. The Ramones wanted none of that as well. So here it is. Uh, we're a happy family from the Ramones on Sound Opinions. We're a happy family. Greg, we should inject here that the Rollins actually were anything but for the last 15 years or so of their uh, career. In fact, Joey and Johnny didn't even talk to each other. Kind of sad what, yeah. they, what they became. But at this point, there was a one-for-all, all-for-one quality. This was the turning point in 77 where maybe punk rock was going to rule the world. That would actually happen, but it would take quite some time. 20 years. Uh, you know, a band <laughs> called Nirvana in 1991, and yeah. as I said earlier, it all eventually leads to Hot Topic in the shopping mall blasting My Chemical Romance, right? What Seymour Stein heard in Loved in Sheena is a Punk Rocker are several things. I mean, A, it's a great song. It's a classic melody. It's got that Phil Spector production. Sleigh bells. There's <laughs> sleigh bells in the song. How can you not love that, right? But it's also a statement of we're going to take this word that used to be an insult, punk, and we're going to we're gonna claim it as a point of pride. Sheena is a punk rocker. The kids are all hopped up and ready to go. New York City is the place where it's all happening. Those are basically the only words in the song, mm-hmm. and yet you can't forget it. I, I really, I will go to my grave saying, if I had to choose one rock and roll single at two minutes and 49 seconds to say this is what this music was about, this is the song. It's impossible to hear this and not be moved. If, if you hear this and you do not like it, well, you don't like rock and roll. I mean, all due respect, go listen to some jazz or something, okay? But uh, Sheena's a punk rocker is a perfect song, and here it is.
Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig deep into the mystery and the myth and the legend of the great blues man, Robert Johnson. We'll be at the crossroads. Download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to thank, as always, producers Brendan Batisak, Alex Claiborne, Iana Contreras, and Andrew Gill. I went to the crossroads, down on money. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey guys, this is Rui from Chicago. I wanted to offer my own contribution to the Buried Treasures uh, show. I've been a fan of alt country for the last decade or two, but there hasn't been what I consider to be a great release from the seminal bands of that genre very recently. Bands like My Morning Jacket, uh, Drive-By Truckers, or even those corporate sellouts, uh, Kings of Leon. The album I am talking about is Tenderness by former or possibly current GNR bass player Duff McKagan. Little tenderness is what we need. Oh, tenderness, can't you feel it spread around? There's not a one bad track uh, on this album, and it is as good an alt country release that I've heard over the past couple of years. Uh, lyrically powerful songs backed by melodies that are both eclectic and hypnotic. This buried treasure reminds me of what arguably I would call the album that started the alt-country genre, uh, Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. It's in that class. Tenderness is a buried treasure from an unexpected source that I believe any fan of good music will treasure. I'm calling from Chicago. I just uh, hope I'm not late to the party regarding the Wawa conversation. Just makes me think of, I was just listening to yesterday, really anything by D'Angelo, but especially uh, Brown Sugar, just that, that Wawa effect he has on, on Hammond. Of course, he always has the Wawa effect on his Wurlitzer electric piano. So, yeah, wouldn't want to miss that one. Thanks for the show, guys. My name is Sam, and I just listened to your episode on the Wawa pedal. I appreciated the show. Understand the emphasis on funk, R&B, soul, and reggae. But I do think you gave rock a bit of a short shrift in your covering of the Wawa pedal. And I was very disappointed that you left out one my favorite guitarist, who I think is in one of the top ten rock guitarists ever. But I think he's one of the masters of the Wawa pedal, and that would be Mr. Frank Zappa. If you listen to any of his solos, you can 
see how he uses the wah-wah pedal to just make incredible tunes. So thank you very much. Um, thank you for your show, and I look forward to other episodes. Hi, this is Robin. Thanks for the great show. I thought the one omission from the wah pedal was Mick Ronson, who played it best on Moon Age Daydream. But throughout his career, he would just use it to find the perfect tone and leave it there untouched. Uh, so that that was one use of the wah that I was always inspired by. Thanks for a great show. Bye. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.